And uh, as we come now to the proclamation of God's word, we're continuing through the gospel of Matthew. And uh, we remain in Matthew 19, verses 16 through 30 is our sermon text. Though We'll be focusing on uh, the first uh, 12 or so verses. But let us read God's word together. We see here as Jesus, uh, Matthew writes, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher... What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All of these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person Enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But Many who are first will be last, the last first. And this is God's holy word. The ever quotable Ben Franklin is often attributed to be the one who coined the term, you can do anything if you just set your mind to it. Now, we probably don't know who actually originally said that. It probably came from many different uh, different sources, and and certainly throughout the course of time and history, it's been spoken by parents and teachers and celebrities and leaders and politicians and, and people of every kind. We've all heard it, and some of us may have even said it with good intentions, but the reality of life if it that it has taught us is, is actually a different lesson, because we find out one way or another, eventually, sometimes painfully, Sometimes with humor, that there are many things that we actually cannot do, no matter how much thought and determination we put into it. But the amazing thing is that as humans, we like to think, yeah, I I really can do everything if I just try hard enough. We think that inwardly we are somehow superheroes, that we possess this power to overcome all challenges to our goals, both big and small. 
And humanity continues to believe that they can actually make the world a better place by just trying harder at doing the right things, despite the fact that history is stained with failed attempts of peace and justice and unity. And it is this pursuit of the impossible that Jesus confronts in our text this morning. In fact, the first thing we see here is what appears to be the perfect disciple. And Jesus has continued to show us throughout the Gospel of Matthew the kind of people that he brings into his kingdom, the kind of people that are his disciples. Uh, back in chapter 18, he explained that those who humbled themselves in faith and repentance and became like little children, those were given access to his kingdom. He taught that... Uh, His disciples are a forgiving people. They seek reconciliation when they've been wronged. And they seek uh, to help those who are straying, to bring them back, to restore them to fellowship once again. We see here even recently in Matthew 19, just a few verses before this little narrative, that Jesus welcomes the little children into his kingdom and encourages parents to bring their little ones. And as we saw, the disciples were bothered initially by these parents bringing their children for what place do children have as disciples of Jesus. But Christ gently reminds them and shows them to such belongs the kingdom. And the children of believing parents are disciples who can grow up into their faith. And so now we come here to verse 16 and we find another person, another man, coming to Jesus. And he asks him, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And to Jesus' other disciples, this man seemed like a perfect candidate for the citizen of Christ's kingdom. I mean, he was young. We see that in other gospel accounts. He, he is moral. He had a sp- spiritual fervor about him. There was a piety that was there. And on top of all that, oh yeah, he was also wealthy. And wealthy people at this time in Israel were thought to have really been blessed by God because after all, they were wealthy. So who wouldn't want this man on their team. He, he seems like the perfect disciple. But we see even as he approaches Jesus right away, he, he has some sense of Jesus' authority. He calls him a teacher. He, he recognizes at least that Jesus had something important to say and was a voice that should be listened to. I mean, this is actually more credit than the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, were willing to give to Jesus. It's more credit than many people today even are willing to give to Jesus. So this man wants to hear what Jesus has to say. We also note he's definitely a moral person. I mean, Jesus tells him in this story to, to keep the law, or at least part of the law that pertained to loving one's neighbor. And the man says, I do that. I've, I've done that. He isn't some demoniac living in a graveyard. He isn't a corrupt tax collector. He isn't even a hypocritical Pharisee. He's he's doing the best he can. He looks pretty good. No doubt this is the kind of guy you want for your neighbor. You don't have to worry about him. He's not looking to hurt you in any way. In fact, 
he appears to actually care about you. His, his observance of the second table of God's moral law to which he is committed meant he was committed to the idea of a society where people didn't try to murder, cheat, and steal. This concern and, and care for others was no doubt genuine. And he believed that through his rigorous observance of this moral law, it made him a moral person. But on top of that, we see he's also very devout. That is to say that he actually is concerned about uh, his standing with God in some sense. Morality had to do with his outward concern towards other people and his devotion has to do with his concern with his relationship with God. And that piety is demonstrated in a couple of ways in this story. Uh, First, we see him actually seeking Jesus. He's actually going out of his way to ask him a question about how to obtain eternal life. Eternal life, of course, is the life in the the messianic kingdom where God has fully restored all things back to himself through his redeeming grace. And he wants to be a part of that. He wants to experience it. He didn't want to miss out. Secondly, we see his devotion in in that uh, after Jesus tells him, keep the commandments, and he says, I've done that. And then he says to Jesus, what do I lack? What is missing? What is that one thing I still haven't done? He had at least some sense that as good as he was doing uh, at keeping the law, something was missing in his life. Even with all his morality, he still wasn't doing enough to, to reach God. And he just wanted to make sure that all those T's were crossed and all those I's dotted. And so there you have this, this perfect disciple, a young, rich man of influence who is devout, moral, upstanding, Apparently looking for the kingdom of heaven, the perfect disciple, or at least it seemed to Jesus' other disciples. But there was a problem, you see, because Jesus has been showing us throughout the gospel of Matthew that there actually are no perfect disciples. In fact, there's only imperfect ones. And Jesus' reply in interaction with this man shows us that once again. The perfect disciple proves to be very imperfect. You see, as pious and moral as he may have appeared on the surface, this man uh, was never really interested in becoming a true committed disciple of Jesus. And we see that in the way he addresses Christ in verse 16. He calls him teacher. And that's important to know how Matthew uses that word, because in Matthew's gospel, that term teacher, whenever anyone addresses Jesus that way, it is always somebody who is really not committed to Christ. They are outside the faith. They say it simply as a term of respect, of honor, but not a term of commitment, And this man, he certainly respected Jesus. He thought he had something good to say, but he was unwilling to commit himself fully to Christ as the King, the Messiah, the Redeemer of God's people. And the reason he was only respectful of Jesus as a person, but not really committed to him as the King, as the Christ was because of those idols that were in his heart, the two lesser gods that kept him from fully following after Jesus. And the first of those was his own morality. He thought he was a pretty good person. He had it all together. 
And so when he asked Jesus, what is the one good thing I must do to possess eternal life? He's asking that from this false belief that, hey, I actually can do this thing. I have the power to do this because I'm pretty good. And of course, Jesus is quick to confront that error. He says, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. And by means of this question, Jesus shows the man that the man's question was wrong. Not because he desired to have eternal life, that's a good thing, but because he thought he had the power to actually obtain it. See, it wasn't those who boasted in their goodness that would obtain it, but as Jesus taught us back in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are broken in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, not the one that thinks, hey, I can do this. I'm pretty good. Jesus is showing us that as humans, we think of goodness in very relative terms. You know, what I think is good and what you think is good might be completely different things. And that's because as humans, we think of goodness often in terms of what we can actually do or cannot do. That's one of the reasons there's so much conflict and division in the world. We can't agree on what is good. One side says one thing is good, while the other says, no, that's not good. What we do is good. And that's because as humans, we're starting from the wrong standard of goodness It needs to be a standard that comes first from God. You see, goodness, says Jesus, is absolute when only applied to God. And so he says to the rich young ruler, there's only one who is actually good. And that, of course, is the Lord. Only God has this absolute standard of goodness. Only God can do what is perfectly good. And so why would you assume then that you can do something good so that you might be able to enter into this kingdom of the Lord. You can't. You don't have the power to do so. And so the first idol we see in this man's heart is his own prideful self-piety, his, his own personal morality. But the second idol that we see from this man that kept him from committing himself fully to Christ was his materialism as well. We see that he, he continues in this dialogue with Jesus. And immediately after Jesus confronts him uh, regarding his false confidence in his own goodness, Jesus says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. So it's like he's saying to him, you really can't do anything good. There's only one who is good. That is God. But if you want to try it, have at it. Keep the commandments. And so the man asked Jesus, well, which ones then? I mean, that's, that's a valid question to ask. After all, the rabbinical tradition had added 613 other laws to the actual revealed law of God. And so he's like, well, which ones then? I just want to make sure I got the right ones here. And so Jesus gives him a list. He says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness, honor Your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All of that should sound familiar. And of course it did to this man. This young rich man's eyes light up as he hears Jesus speak. After all, he's he's been trying to live a moral life. And he replies to Jesus, I've done all that. I've kept all these things. 
So, so what am I lacking then? See, the man still thought that there was that one good thing he could do if only he was told what it was. But Jesus is about to lay down a hammer on his thinking. He's about to lay down the hammer of God's law. And he's about to show once again that the law goes far deeper and requires far more righteousness to actually fulfill than a person could ever hope to keep. See, Jesus doesn't just reveal to us God's truth when he confronts us with the holy law of God, but he reveals to us the truth about ourselves through that law. And that is that we could never keep its standard. So Jesus gives this man a list of commandments. He, he recites what is actually half of the Ten Commandments to him. That is the moral law of God. And the Ten Commandments are structured in what we call two tables. The first table has to do with our responsibility as people towards God. So you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a carved image of anything and worship it as if it were God. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, and you shall remember the Sabbath day and rest in the Lord. All of that pertains to how we as humans are to relate to God if we are to know him and enjoy his blessings. The second table of the law pertains how we relate to each other as humans. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie or or bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And so those are these two tables of the law. Jesus summarizes them in Matthew 22 as we'll see later, that the first table is about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second table is about loving your neighbor as yourself, as Jesus even says here in Matthew 19. Now notice this, though. When the man asks which commandments he needs to keep, Jesus doesn't give him that first table of the law. He doesn't say, Love the Lord your God with all your heart by doing these things, this first set of commandments. No, he jumps straight to the second table of the law. Why does he do that? Well, he did that because we as humans like to think we actually are pretty good at that second table. We're pretty good at loving our neighbors as ourselves. Even though we may admit, you know, my relationship with God isn't exactly what it needs to be. And that's actually how this man seemed to be thinking. Because after all, he said, what is that one thing I lack? But we think, you know, when it comes to treating other people, I know how to do that. And I can do that if I just put my mind to it. If I put enough effort into it, I can treat others well. But Jesus pulls down that false notion. You see, he's about to show this man, you haven't even kept the second part of the law, that second table, and if you can't even love your neighbor as yourself, how do you think you can love God as God orders you to love him? And so Jesus says to the man, well, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And the idea of perfect here is that of of complete or mature or fulfilled. In other words, if you want to be complete, if you want to have fulfilled this second table of the law, here's what you need to do. Sell what you have, give it to the poor, and follow after me. 
Now, I want to be careful here because Jesus isn't saying that wealth or possessions are evil. That's not what he's saying. Nor is he saying that if a person wants to truly be part of God's kingdom, all they have to do is give up everything and live a poor life. That's not what he's saying. That runs contrary to the gospel. But what he is doing is exposing to this man where his God really was. Obviously in his morality, but also in his materialism, the things that he possessed. Owning possessions, enjoying luxuries, having wealth, that isn't sinful in itself. But if those things are so important to a person that they keep them from following Christ, from being his disciple, that somehow through their power and their wealth, they are actually able to better themselves and better this world, then their heart isn't set on following after Christ. You see, Jesus isn't calling this young rich man to uh, disinvestment, but he's calling him to discipleship. Yet that proved too much for him. We read in verse 22 that when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He doesn't follow Jesus. He doesn't leave aside and repent of his moralism and his materialism to worship Christ alone. He doesn't repent of his fallen nature. Instead, he turns away from Jesus and he goes back down the road from which he came, the road that his rebel heart was leading him down. And the great tragedy of that story is, though, that it's been repeated again and again and again in the lives of people, both rich and poor. You see, people go about life sorrowing and experiencing misery upon misery brought on by the fact that, yes, they indeed are sinners. They have broken this law. They have not loved their neighbor as their self, and they certainly have not loved God as he deserves. And we are that way because we live in this sin-cursed and broken world. And so as humans... Because of that, we, we follow after these idols of our own design, be they our own morality, materialism, whatever it is, believing that, that we are good, that we just lack that one thing, that if we just do things right, we can make everything better and establish peace in our lives and peace in this world and peace between God and ourselves. But that kind of life of, of, of running after these lesser gods, these other idols, It only leads to sorrow like it did for this man. It only leads to more hurt. You you see, salvation from ourselves, from our sin, is impossible for us. After the young rich man leaves, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Truly I say to you, in verse 23, Only with great difficulty or with difficulty will a rich person enter into the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And again, Jesus isn't saying that a rich person will never enter into the kingdom. Rather, he's saying it's difficult for them because they are tempted to hold on to the lesser God of of their wealth. We oftentimes actually want Jesus like this man did. 
But we want him along with everything else. And so he's saying, it's difficult. There are these idols that are there. Salvation is difficult. In fact, it's so difficult, he actually steps it up here. It is so difficult that for us as humans, salvation is actually impossible to achieve. Because we could never be good enough. Jesus has once again shown that the law has this demand that is impossible to fulfill, to try to meet the requirements of, of God's holy law is impossible. It's like trying to squeeze an entire camel through the eye of a needle. And this little proverbial image that he mentions is, is meant to highlight this absolute impossibility. A camel was the largest animal in Palestine, and the eye of needle was actually the eye of a needle. Uh, you may have heard, well, this was a gate in the wall that uh, camels couldn't pass through, but people could. There's actually no archaeological or historical evidence of that. The phrase actually means trying to squeeze an a-, a camel through the little eye, the little hole in a needle. It's not possible. It's a similar turn of words to what we say when we say we're trying to find a needle in the haystack. A camel could never fit through such a small hole. And so this leads the disciples to question then, well, then who can be saved? You see, in the world of the disciples, wealth was thought to be a sign of God's blessing. So the wealthy must be closer to God because of their wealth. And if you're saying that it's like a wealthy person is like a camel trying to get through the eye of the needle. If they can't be saved because of their wealth, who can be saved? Salvation is impossible. And that's precisely the point that Jesus wanted to bring them to and to have us see as well. Only when we come to the frightening conclusion that we can do nothing to bring salvation to ourselves and to this world, will we then be ready to lay aside our trust in all these lesser things that could never save us and trust completely in the King who is Jesus Christ? And so we must come to this point of understanding that there are no perfect disciples. We are all imperfect disciples on our best day. But, thanks be to God, there is a perfect Savior. That's what it's about. You see, Jesus is that perfect Savior because he meets us in our imperfection. He rescues us from this mad pursuit of our own idols. Notice what he says in verse 26. I love this. He says, Jesus looked at them. He looked at his disciples and he said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And so here as these disciples, their world has just been rocked. They just realize, you know what? Just because someone's wealthy doesn't mean God's blessing is upon them. And they're still not good enough, not able to enter into the kingdom. Salvation is impossible. And Jesus, in that moment of fear, he looks at them. He turns his gaze upon them. He sees them where they are. He sees the struggle in their hearts, the fear, the confusion, the despair, because they know they aren't perfect in their pursuit of Christ's kingdom. And in that tender, gentle look of grace, 
He speaks words of peace to them. With man, this thing, this salvation is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And look at the contrast here. He says, with with man, you can't even do this one thing, this single thing. You can't save yourself. There isn't one thing that you are lacking that you can do to somehow improve your condition. You can't do that. You can't even keep the second table of the law, which seems like you think you do pretty well. But God can do not just this thing, but all things. There is nothing impossible for him. A camel can't fit through the eye of a needle, but Jesus says, I can actually push one through the eye of a needle, and I will do just that when it comes to your salvation. I will make the impossible salvation possible for you. And that's what he has done, and that is what he continues to do as he saves his people. There is no one that is good but God. Therefore, no one can do the good thing required to gain God's favor, but Jesus is God. And he can do that good thing, and he did, keeping every part of the law, the first table and the second table, perfectly for us. He did that by doing the impossible. He comes down and becomes the last, though he is first, so that he might bring us through the eye of the needle into his kingdom. And this rich man and in this narrative, he couldn't leave everything that was valuable to him to follow after Christ. But Jesus was willing to lay aside the far greater possession to pursue after sinners like us. He is, after all, the creator of all that is. To him, every cattle on a thousand hills is his. All the wealth of the world, every piece of gold, every precious jewel buried in the deepest crevices of this world, it is all his the wealth of a thousand worlds and stars and planets. It is all his. All the glory of heaven as the perfect eternal God. It is his. All praise is his. And yet he's willing to lay that aside and come down and take on flesh and become a servant and die on a cross to raise again so that he would rescue you so that he could make the impossible salvation possible for you. There are no perfect disciples. I certainly, as your pastor can tell you, I am not one and I'm sure you know that by now. But thanks be to God, we have a perfect Savior in Jesus. And so the call to us is this. It's let us lay aside those lesser gods that tempt us. Let us cast aside those idols and cling only to Christ. Only to our perfect Savior. And he will carry us through that eye of the needle all the way home into his kingdom forever. Let us pray. 
Father, we thank you that you have given us this great gift of salvation that we could never earn, that we could never obtain, for it is impossible for us, but you have made it possible through Christ who redeems us completely by his grace. And so, Father, I pray that you'd remind us of these things when we are discouraged and despairing at ourselves, at how we have failed you and how we are lacking that one thing. Help us to look to the one who has done all things for us so that we might rest in him and know that you are making the impossible possible in our lives now and for all eternity. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.